chapter of the Gospel of Mark has been called the Bible's home for the suffering and the incurable. Dr. Jerry Vines said that some years ago. Here in this chapter alone, the Gospel writer Mark describes three cases which are absolutely, from a human perspective, impossible to overcome. There is a demoniac delivered, a little girl raised from the dead, and a sick woman miraculously healed. All three were considered impossible cases in Jesus' day, and they would be in ours as well. The man would have been consigned to a mental institution, the woman would have been placed in the intensive care ward, and the little girl's body would have been certainly put into the morgue. But instead, each of these individuals had an encounter with Jesus and with his unrivaled goodness and power, and so their lives were forever changed. Things that are impossible are, not, are possible with God, Luke says in Luke 18, 27. In each and every circumstance, Jesus Christ was more than enough for them. Is he more than enough for you? As one old Southern preacher put it, to the demonized man, Jesus became the great psychiatrist. To the woman with the issue of blood, Jesus was the great physician. And to the little girl who was dead, Jesus was the great pediatrician. Whatever you need this morning, I can assure you, Jesus is enough. Now, in effect, you may not realize this, but our story of Jesus delivering this untamable demon-possessed maniac near the Decapolis, which literally means the ten cities, actually begins back in Mark chapter 4, beginning with verse 35. You see, it is still relatively early in Jesus' public ministry at this point. Christ and his disciples are here ministering to the masses in and around the Sea of Galilee with the town of Capernaum, as we learned last Sunday morning, operating as Jesus' home base, if you will. Jesus is teaching the people in parables, and the tensions are rising between he and the Pharisees. We'll learn more about them next week, and the scribes and the other religious know-it-alls who clearly saw Jesus as the major threat to their cushy control over the citizenry of Israel. And then suddenly, Mark's gospel narrative takes a turn. Mark chapter 4, verse 35, look at the text. On that day, Mark writes, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling, but he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with a great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind 
and the sea obey him. The first half of Mark's gospel, Mark 1 verse 1 through Mark 8 verse 29 and 30, is filled with scene after glorious scene, each pointing to the answer behind the momentous question, who is this man? Who is Jesus? Who is he that raises the dead and heals the sick and teaches with authority that is unmatched? In fact, the bookends of the first half of Mark's account actually remove all doubt as to who he is. Look at Mark 1, verse 1. One bookend. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Clear enough? (laughs) Now look at Mark chapter 8, verse 29. Peter's great confession where he says, Jesus says, and he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, you are the Christ. So as the reader to Mark's gospel, you and I should say, okay, who is Jesus? He is the Son of God, and he is the Messiah of Israel. Clear enough. But if you're in Mark's story, it seems like nobody can understand who he is. So the first eight chapters of Mark's gospel we see time and time again present Jesus as the Son of God, the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. When you read your word Christ in your New Testaments, it's the word Messiah. It means anointed one. And he comes announcing the arrival of God's kingdom on earth by preaching repentance and salvation for those who place their trust in him and by demonstrating his true identity by performing incredible miracles and displaying awesome authority over demons and disease and even death itself. That's who he is. The Holy One of God in Mark's gospel is a herald of divine truth and a healer with divine power. And you would do well to do business with him. He travels from village to village preaching the kingdom and forgiving sin and leaving a trail of newly mended lives in his wonderful wake of grace. He's like no other to grace the earth. That's who he is. Now, by the way, the second half of Mark's gospel, beginning in chapter 8, verse 31, all the way to chapter 16 and verse 20, will also answer the question, who is Jesus? However, the answer there will not so much focus on Jesus' teaching and miracles, but rather upon his suffering and his death and his resurrection from the grave. Because we have three times, Mark 8, 31, Uh, Mark 9, 31, and Mark 10, verses 33 to 34, where Jesus predicts his suffering, his execution, and his resurrection in Jerusalem not many days from now. And so Mark is telling us who this Jesus is. He heals diseases. He raises the dead. He defeats the kingdom of Satan. And oh, by the way, he also proves who he is by his death and resurrection from the grave. Let there be no doubt who this man from Nazareth truly is. He is the Messiah. Jesus, the Son of God and Christ of Israel, in the second half, is the suffering servant of Yahweh, and he's come to rescue us. And so, friends, notice with me this morning. Just before Jesus and his floating flotilla of fearful disciples reach the other sea of the Sea of Galilee, the other side of the sea, to the, country, to the country of the Gerasenes, we're told in Mark 5, verse 1, that Mark provides so beautifully for his readers a helpful little hint of what's soon to happen in the region of the Gerasenes. 
You see, there's another storm raging in the region of the Decapolis. It's dark. It's ominous. It's dangerous. And the people there around the Decapolis are gripped with fear due to the hurricane of human suffering in the soul of one demon-possessed man. In other words, maybe you didn't know this before, but now you know it. Jesus' calming of the storm in Mark 4, 35 to 41 is strategically placed as a prequel to the story of Jesus cleansing the demon-possessed man's soul. Jesus' power over the fury of a storm at sea is contrasted with his power over the supernatural forces of darkness in, a, in the uncontrollable, unclean human heart. He is Lord of all. In both cases, Jesus speaks peace. In both instances, he quiets a storm. Both stories show us Jesus' identity and authority. He is the Son of the Most High, and he is the Lord over all, the giver of new life. Now, Jesus, at the very beginning of Mark chapter 5, join me there in, in your Bibles, we see is ministering on, you might say, on the proverbial other side of the tracks. When it says that he went across the sea, that's really what we should understand. There is a great deal of debate in New Testament scholarship regarding the exact location of where this particular miracle happened, this exorcism of the demon-possessed man. Is it the Gadarenes, as some translations perhaps even in the room this morning have, or is it the Gerasenes? I think it's the Gerasenes, which is the way the ESV takes it. In any event, it doesn't really matter all that much. That's really not the point. Mark tells us that they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And what is Mark saying, and what should we understand when we read those words? But this, he's telling us something about the expansion of the kingdom of God. Up to this point... The gospel is going to the Jews. But from this point, in sort of a, a prequel to the coming attractions of a, of a blockbuster movie uh, soon to be released, we see this glimpse that the kingdom of God and the person of Christ is coming to Gentiles as well. That's what we see on the other side of the sea, on the other side of the tracks. People who don't act like us and don't look like us and don't talk like us and don't think like us, guess what? God loves them too. God came for them too. See, Jesus here is on a mission of mercy and redemption. And this spooky scene, remember Mark 4.35 says, it was at night or in the evening when Jesus got on the boat. And among the shadows of the tombs there where this demoniac must have dwelt for so long demonstrates the lengths to which Jesus will go to deliver even one lost soul from the grip of a thousand devils. Did you notice that? Did you notice that curious little detail in the story? Perhaps you caught this somewhat subtle but ever so shocking point. Why did Jesus need to cross the sea? The Sea of Galilee was roughly 13 miles top to bottom, and seven and a half miles side to side. It would have likely taken Jesus and his disciples several hours 
if the wind was moving in the right direction to get from Capernaum to the place of the Decapolis. It would have taken the better part of a day if the, if the winds were still because they would have had to row the boat. Why did Jesus need to go across the sea? Why did Jesus arrive in this particular desolate and dangerous location, this Gentile region on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee? I'll tell you why he had to cross the sea that day. He had to cross the sea to calm the tortured soul of one man. Just one man. Do you notice at the end of our passage, Mark chapter 5, verse 21? Look at the text. It says, and when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea. Now, what is Mark saying? But that the scene that we're going to look at in a moment has now concluded. And immediately Jesus gets back in the boat and he goes back across the Sea of Galilee. I mean, what are you doing, Jesus? I've got a pastor friend who loves to take vacation time, and he's retired now, so he has lots of it, to simply visit graveyards and cemeteries, particularly Civil War cemeteries. I do not understand him at all. It's sort of what Jesus does here, only this is no vacation. This is a business trip. Jesus is on a business trip. It should not be lost on any one of us that Jesus crossed a raging sea to speak peace for one soul. If you were the only soul whom God ever made and you had taken the fruit and incurred the wrath of God against sin, Jesus would have come for you. He would have come for you. He would have left the glories of heaven to come just for you. That's the kind of God that we serve. That's the kind of God who loves us. John Wesley said, or Charles, one of the two, they were both prolific hymn writers, he left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for oh my God, it found out me. A line to the song, and can it be? Now, it should also not be overlooked, if you're studying the passage with me, that Jesus alone is seen facing down the forces of hell by himself. Do you notice that in verse 2? The text says, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Now, you've got to slow down sometimes when you're reading God's word. Back in Mark chapter 4, several boats had launched out to cross the sea. At the beginning of Mark 5, a boat is focused on and one man is seen getting out of the boat. You see, we don't collectively defeat Satan and the forces of hell. That's Jesus' job. Jesus does that. And so we see here Christ getting out of the boat alone. According to verse 36 of Mark chapter 4, there were multiple boats, but only one man stepped out of the boat and into the life of this dangerous, devil-filled, Gentile maniac. I mean, who could blame them, though? Who could blame the disciples for cowering back in the boat and peeping through the hole in the side? 
I know that I probably would have stayed in the boat too. In fact, I thought about this several times this week. I often do hide in the proverbial boats of discipleship anytime I fail to tell somebody else about this Jesus who crossed heaven and earth for them. Do you hide in the boat? I think we all do from time to time. But the fact of the matter is that here, the disciples, at least to me, and I might be making more of it than one ought, are ominously absent from this scene in the Gerasenes. They're nowhere to be found. It's Jesus against a legion of demons. Well, Mark tells us why Jesus might have been the only one to get out of the boat. Mark chapter 5, verse 3. And he, that is the demoniac, lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Now, Luke's parallel account found in Luke chapter 8, verse 26 and following tells us that this man had lived there for a long time, that he wore no clothes, and that he had not lived in a house, but rather he lived among the tombs. On a certain level, understand that this miserable, untamable man living among the dead is simply a picture of the mass of humanity steeped in his rebellion against God in sin. I said last week, you, were, you and I are the man on the mat. Well, this week, we're out of our minds. We're demoniacs in our sin. The insanity, the nakedness, the raging violence of this man's inner and outer presence itself is a parable of mankind's awful predicament apart from God's infinite grace. You might be tempted to sit back and judge the demoniac. But I think Ephesians 2 verses 1 and following apply to you. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in the ways in which you once walked, following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air. We were all out of our minds in sin once upon a time. The sin and the ravages of, de of dem demonic possession had made this man appear almost subhuman. For that is what sin does to us. Sin twists us right side out. Sin perverts what God declares pure. Sin sabotages us. That's what sin does. Sin is insanity for us as human beings. The demoniac is a social and spiritual outcast here. He is depicted as a menace to society and, to, and as a madman to be avoided at all costs. I mean, imagine uh, others had tried to tame him but had failed brilliantly. They had failed such that now this demon-possessed man was simply labeled a lost cause. I can imagine early uh, first-century parents simply warning their uh, wild teenagers not to play too close to the seashore because of that wild man that was known to be living among the tombs. From a Jewish perspective, there was something even more revolting about this poor, unfortunate soul. You see, first of all, again... He was a Gentile. To you and I, who are Gentiles, that might not sound like a big deal, but to a Jew, that's a big deal. The Decapolis, literally the ten cities, was a predominantly Greek or Gentile district. 
So look, the fact alone, that fact alone was enough for any self-respecting Jew to stay in the boat, to not get out of the boat, maybe even to not even visit that side of the sea. We all tend to look down on those who live on the other side of the tracks, who aren't like us, but not Jesus. You remember the mission statement of the Gospel of Mark is Luke, is, is not Mark, it's Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. See, Jesus doesn't avoid those who are not like him because he's in a class all his own. We're all not like him. He comes across the sea for us. In Mark 5, the gospel of the kingdom is expanding. Like a, like a, a commercial for a coming film. It's expanding to new territory and to Gentiles. Of course, beyond this, notice as well, the poor man was ritually unclean on account of the fact that he lived among the tombs. Now, again, we have to do some historical, cultural uh, analysis to understand what's going on there. But according to the law, the law of Moses, anyone who came into contact with the dead or the tombs of the dead would have themselves been considered unclean and therefore unable to sacrifice, make an offering of worship, unless that uncleanness was dealt with ritually. The demon-possessed man, we are told, had settled down with death. He had, he had basically made his abode, his dwelling place among these tombs. But Jesus was different. When he encountered someone or something that was unclean, he did not become unclean. The unclean thing became clean. That's what happened with Jesus. This is the gospel of the kingdom, and it involves a promise of a great reversal. A great reversal. That's part of what we should see here. Moreover, this man, not only was he unclean, he was unclean by virtue of the spirit that is in him, as opposed to us as Christians, who also are possessed by a spirit, but it is the Holy Spirit of God. Worse than that, this man was possessed by an entire legion of devils. Now, a Roman legion consisted of somewhere between four and 6,000 Roman soldiers. Four and 6,000. We don't know how many demons were possessing this man. I think the point is that there was an overwhelming force that had gripped this man's soul and condition. He was externally and internally unclean and in suffering. More than that, by way of description, this man's desperate condition is described by Mark uh, as being isolated. He was one man. Now, there's a parallel account in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8, I believe, where there are two demon-possessed men mentioned. That'll have to be another study or another Bible study to deal with that particular detail. He's described as violent. He, we're told in the text that he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but had wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces such that no one had the strength to subdue him. And then finally, the last detail is he was in constant agony and suffering. Night and day, Mark describes him as, as living among the tombs, always on the mountains, crying out and cutting himself with stones. Imagine the most miserable condition a man could be in. That is the demoniac in his condition. No one could come near him. 
No one could control him. No one could comfort him. And few would even still try. He was a dead man living among dead men. He was a destructive force under the influence of a legion of demons. Until life crossed the sea for him. The center of this incredible story picks up in verse 6. It's the middle of the message. The most significant point that I think Mark is trying to make is found in the middle of the message. And it's simply this. That the arrival of the kingdom of God, friend, in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, spells certain doom and defeat for Satan and his evil legions and abundant life for anyone who will embrace him by faith. That's the point of this particular story. The Bible says in John 10, verse 10, that the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. But I have come, Jesus says, that you might have life and that you might have it to the full. To the full, Jesus came that we might have joy and life. Jesus said to Jews who had believed in him in John 8, 31 and following, that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth. And what? The truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. See, the moral to the story of Mark chapter 5, even more than Jesus' amazing missionary mindset and his mercy to set a tortured soul free is our Lord's sovereignty, our Lord's greater authority and power over Satan, over demons, over the gates of hell themselves. Who is Jesus? He's not just showing up to dazzle you. He's showing up to display his divine authority over you. That's who he is. The middle of this encounter shows us yet another dimension of Jesus' unrivaled identity. He has an unstoppable authority over spiritual forces of death and darkness. That is who this man is. So pick up again with me in verse 6. And when Jesus, or sorry, when he saw Jesus from afar, that is the demoniac, saw him, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out. Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And notice the text says, and he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him saying, send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out of them and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned into the sea. Fascinating passage. Again, notice that in Mark's gospel, it's oddly the outsiders who both identify and present who Jesus Christ is. Specifically, demons and Roman soldiers get it in Mark's gospel. The disciples really don't. We read in James chapter 2, verse 19, You believe that God is one? You do well. Good for you, you might say in our vernacular. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. There are many curious questions raised by this particular text. For example, let me just give you three quickly. Is the fact that this demoniac runs up to Jesus and falls down at his feet an expression of worship or submission? I think some translations uh, 
render that phrase, he fell down and worshipped him. But let me tell you something. I think that's a, a mistranslation because demons don't worship Jesus. I think it's rather to, uh, to, to translate that, he fell down in submission to Jesus because he had no other choice. He wasn't worshipping him. This was the one who made him. Jesus made all things, according to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Secondly, how many demons did this man have? Well, how many angels can dance on the head of a pen? Who knows? Who cares? A Roman legion, again, consisted of between four and 6,000 soldiers. But the point here from Mark is that this man was overtaken by a massive force of demons that were tormenting and torturing his soul. A seemingly overwhelming and unstoppable force until Jesus spoke to them. Because Jesus has authority over all. And perhaps most curiously, and I'll come back to this in just a little bit, why did Jesus seem to negotiate with these demons, allowing them to in, enter a nearby herd of pigs? It seems to pose quite an ethical conundrum, really, until you realize what's a pig when he owns the cattle on a thousand hills already. It all belongs to him. It's possible that this scene of the pigs jumping in uh, over the cliff into the sea was a foreshadowing of a coming judgment, according to 2 Peter 2, verse 4, of the angels being thrown into the abyss, or Jude, verse 6. But the point is that Jesus is in charge when he comes across the sea and he gets out of the boat. These questions might seem enticing, but they are really beside the point. For the big point of this episode is simply to make it crystal clear that Jesus and his kingdom is greater than Satan and his forces. That's the point of Mark chapter 5. As the French reformer John Calvin stated so well, though we are not tortured by the devil, yet he holds us as his slaves till the Son of God delivers us from his tyranny. Naked, torn, and disfigured, we wander about till he rescues us to soundness of mind. Dear ones, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Or as Bill and Gloria Gaither once wrote and sang, shackled by a heavy burden, neath a load of guilt and shame, then the hand of Jesus touched me, and now I am no longer the same. He touched me. Oh, he touched me, and oh, the joy that floods my soul. Something happened. And now I know he touched me and made me whole. No one had the strength to subdue this man, let alone help him, before Jesus stepped in. As bad as it was for this man to have a raging body filled with demons, the worst part of it all was that his heart was as cold as stone. He was a dead man, living among dead men, just as we all are apart from the grip of God's grace. According to Ephesians 2. Beloved, that was before Jesus arrived on the shores of his life, and it was before he was delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred, according to Colossians 1.3, into the marvelous kingdom of his beloved Son, being forgiven of his sins and set in his right mind and clothed with the very garments of Jesus Christ by his grace. Don't miss this. A legion of hell's angels had toyed with this man and had tortured this poor man for a long time, according to Luke 8. But Jesus, Jesus stepped in. These terrorists begged not to be tortured. 
Mark's point is plain. The arrival of God's kingdom spells disaster for Satan's domain. When the Son of God comes to town, the devil's business is shut down. That's what Mark 5 is all about. Well, our last section of this amazing encounter with Jesus shows us the great reversal in vivid colors. It shows us what takes place any time a hopeless and helpless human actually meets Jesus personally. And again, here is a wonderful lesson about the very nature of radical Christian discipleship. You see, evidently, in addition to the cowering pack of disciples back in the boat, there was also herdsmen watching the scene nearby. Mark chapter 5, verse 14 says this, The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and notice, they were afraid. It's curious that Mark doesn't write, and they were overjoyed, or they were relieved. Haven't they been afraid for a while already? Maybe it was the rising price of bacon that had gotten their attention. Who knows? But in any event, when the townies came to Jesus, notice what they saw. They saw the violent and aggressive man who had been running around terrorizing everybody in the Decapolis now sitting there. They had never seen him still before. He was sitting there soaking in the glory of Jesus. What else did they see? They saw this formerly naked man, exposed man, who was the embarrassment of the region. I mean, you're welcome to come visit us, but just stay away from the tombs. They saw this man now clothed in the very presence of Jesus. Is that not what happens to us through the gospel? They saw thirdly and finally this maniac who had been possessed by an army of hell's angels being described as sitting in his right mind by the mercy of God. Colossians 3, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Friend, the Bible says that if anyone is in Christ, he is new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Paul writes to the Romans, Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. See, we're all slaves, friends. Either slaves of Satan and sin or slaves of Jesus and life. What the townspeople saw when they arrived near the lake was nothing short of a miracle. The storm of one demented, demon-possessed man's soul had been stilled. He was now calmed, cleansed, and clothed in the presence of Christ. That's what the gospel does. Mark simply tells us they were afraid, that they had been afraid for years at the wild man who lived down by the tombs, and now they were afraid in the presence of a holy man who they didn't know what to do with. Mark concludes his scene this way. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And as he was getting in the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with them, and he did not permit him, but he said to him, 
Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Now, there's a curious thing in this text that not once and not twice, not three times, but four times, somebody begs Jesus. Back earlier, Legion begged Jesus not to send him out of the region. And Jesus permitted it. Secondly, the devils begged Jesus to send them into the pigs. And Jesus permitted it. Stay with me. Thirdly, the townspeople begged Jesus to get out of their region. And he permitted it. He left. But hold on, the man who had been delivered begged Jesus, and he did not permit it. You think you are ruling your life. You are not. Jesus is the ruler of our lives as his disciples. I don't know what all to make of this. But I know that Jesus has authority over all things, and it just strikes me like a four-by-four four across the head that Jesus did not allow this uh, redeemed man, this delivered man, to get in the boat and go with him. He says, I have something more for you to do. And he displays his authority over his life. Somebody wrote this years ago, Rabbi, be gone. Thy powers bring loss to us and ours. Our ways are not as thine. Thou lovest men, but we are swine. O oh, get ye hence omnipotence, and take this fool of thine. His soul, what care we for his soul? What good to us that thou hast made him whole, since we have lost our swine? Jesus displayed his authority over the demons over the townspeople, and even over this rightly mined disciple. He does the same for us. At the very end of the passage, and I'll close with this today, we read in verses 19 and 20, and he did not permit him, notice with, him, with me, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. And how he has shown mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Do you catch what he says there? Mark is telling us once again the authority and the identity of Jesus Christ. Tell people how much the Lord has done for you. Tell people how much Jesus has done for you. As one writer said, Jesus turned a madman into a missionary. He crossed the sea for a single soul, and he ended up reaching 10 cities with this man's testimony from this encounter with Christ. Some historians say that the, the region where this man was delivered became one of the most uh, uh, fervent centers of Christian living for two centuries after the time of Christ, perhaps because of one delivered soul's testimony. What do you think Jesus could do through you and through us if we allow him to lead our lives as disciples. Let's bow in prayer. Almighty God and Father,
You are the Lord. There is no other. Apart from you, there is no God. And, O oh Lord, we, we marvel at this book and at this scene. And while there are many truly befuddling mysteries here, Lord, there is one clear story that Jesus, in his compassion, displays his authority over all forces. Delivering even one tortured soul is heaven's highest joy. So, Father, thank you for your mercy to us. And I pray that you would, by your spirit, enable us to join you on this mission of divine mercy, sharing freely the story of Jesus and his identity with all those around us. And we'll give you the praise in Christ's name. Amen.